0: And now, another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All
1: right, folks. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 52 today, uh, losing the Nobel Prize with Professor and Physicist Brian Keating of the University of California in San Diego.
0: Hi, guys. Pleasure to be here. Good. Good to see you guys
1: uh really enjoyed your book um i didn't know what to expect going in um i learned a lot from the standpoint of like physics and that kind of stuff um but i also learned a lot about how the inner working of academia from the science side of things and the nobel prize the way that you know that whole uh system works so why don't you talk about um a little bit of the background and how you were involved uh, with, you know, you, how you created the telescope and all that.
0: Yeah. So I've always been interested in astronomy and cosmology and wanting to understand as much as I could about the universe. And, you know, for me, that, that really made me interested in going back as far in time as one could possibly go uh, which really in the case of cosmology and astrophysics as we understand it means that we need to understand what the universe was like at the very beginning of time <clears throat> And uh, so the way that we do that is we look back in space and when you look back in space and nothing's in your way you're also looking back in time. So if you look at the sun right now um, you know don't look with your naked eyes mm-hmm. uh, be, you know take it from me. I'm, I'm a doctor doctor of astronomy when you look out, you're seeing the sun not as it is this instant right now. Uh, you're seeing the way it was eight minutes ago because it's eight light minutes away. Now, right. what's behind the sun, there could be you know, a planet behind the sun uh, that you can't see in conjunction. If it's behind the sun uh, enough, you can't see it. And in that case, you know, that might be, say, the planet Mars, which could be another 20 minutes of light travel time away. So if the sun wasn't there, you'd be able to see 20 minutes back in time farther than the sun. So if you look, that is where there's nothing in your way, no galaxies, planets, stars, people, whatever, then you're looking back to the origin of light itself. And that's the light that we study in order to divine information about the earliest moments in the universe by looking back as far as one can possibly look out into the universe. And that's called the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, or CMB for short. It's a type of light in the form of microwave energy that's very low energy, very low power, so it's not going to cook you guys, uh, make you heat up. Uh, It's actually equivalent to something that's only about 3 degrees above absolute zero, so minus 270 degrees Celsius or minus 450 or so degrees below zero Fahrenheit, colder than a polar vortex. And that, uh, that temperature suffuses the universe currently and we study the properties of that uh, lights, the signal that we see in all directions. And that tells us about what happened in the first few minutes of the universe's existence of our current universe. What's intriguing is that by building a special type of telescope, I realized along with other colleagues that we could potentially look farther back in time than even the formation of the matter that makes up the universe, makes, up, uh, makes us up, for example, namely protons, neutrons, Croutons, in my case. I, I eat a lot of croutons. <laughs> uh, so the uh, signal that we see is actually potentially a relic signal from beyond the Big Bang, beyond this the light source that we see in the form of the CMB, this 3 Kelvin background. And that's called the, uh, the gravitational wave background, which, if it exists, would give us information not about the first... Year in the lifetime of the universe, or first month, or first day, or first hour, second, but first trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So uh, decimal point, 35 zeros, and a one. And that's how far back in time we'd be looking.
1: Wow. I know that's crazy. Um, so you say if. So there's a lot of, and that's the other thing is, I mean, I already kind of knew this, but um, most people just take what they learn in, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, and then they don't learn anything new from there. So they just assume that that's just how it is and carries on for the rest of their life. But really, science is always evolving like anything else. And ideas that are normal today are not always going to be the case maybe 50 years from now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I always say that you know, you've heard everything I ever needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten, right? So that's kind of <laughs> everything I ever needed to learn, I learned in advanced relativistic quantum mechanics. Um, so that's very common, I'm sure. No, I'm just kidding. That, that, yeah. uh, <laughs> we, need, uh, we, we need a lot of education post, you know, post-graduation from, from college. And in my case, that took me to graduate school after I was an undergraduate at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. I went to uh, graduate school at Brown University in Providence. And became uh, eventually what's called a postdoctoral uh, scholar at Stanford University, later at um, at at Caltech in Pasadena, and then I've been here in San Diego uh, for the past uh, for the past fifteen years now, which is amazing to think about um, that that I've been here you know so long, <laughs> and um, and all of that you know has really led up to this you know inkling of an idea that you could use a signal from. Beyond the earliest light in the universe, to um, to really learn about what the universe was like before the Big Bang, potentially. So you know the question of whether or not we could see something beyond the Big Bang is is truly a fascinating uh, question. And in my case, it really you know led me to want to understand truly the depths of of knowledge that was possible because it turns out that that it may be possible to see really events that happened before the Big Bang in what's called uh, in what's called the cyclic cosmology. It may be, in other words, that our Big Bang was not unique. And uh, in that case, our Big Bang might be just one of an infinite number of cycles of Big Bang's big collapse, big crunches, and expansions. And that's just one of the mysterious kind of possibilities that are so delightful to be able to study um, about our universe. And there are many others that maybe we can get into later. Most, most notably something called the multiverse that, that maybe we can spend a few yeah. minutes on later on discussing.
1: Yeah. So let's get into your book. Um, the premise is this, this is the way that I understood it from reading it. Um, you created this experiment and this telescope, uh, you were part of a team, um, now you joined another team, and by joining that other team, when it came time when you guys actually won the Nobel Prize for your team, they you can only pick three people to actually receive the award, and since you were part of this other team, you probably got snubbed from the prize.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. So the title of my book is "Losing the Nobel Prize," and it really um, is, is, is has has multiple meanings. Actually, one of one of the meanings is how I personally lost the Nobel Prize. Uh, the second meaning is after I was um, nominated and in fact, or, you know, considered for nomination by many people around the world as being worthy of of uh, receiving the Nobel Prize back in 2014, um, that actually, that not only did I not win it, but none of us who were on the project at all won the Nobel Prize for that discovery because it turned out we had to retract that discovery uh, and retract the claims that we had made of the uh, first glimpse of this epoch that in some sense would have preceded the familiar pattern of expansion of the universe that we observe as the Big Bang, and really had been the spark that ignited the explosive, you know, hyper-expansion of space and time. That period of time is called inflation, and it turns out that's also intimately related to this multiverse concept. But uh, but then it turns out we had to retract that claim, and the aftermath of that retraction meant that none of us won the Nobel Prize. And it is true that I was, you know, kind of written out of the uh, storyline in some sense of the original announcement and the contributions that my myself and, and members of my team had made, you know, were kind of downplayed. Not eliminated, but, but you know, kind of uh, downplayed. And that was, you know, in my opinion, kind of born out of the fact that I had, joined up with a competing experiment at least it was perceived to be a competitor it turned out not to be but like many things in life sometimes you perceive competition and and um you know there's a famous book that i read actually that's really important in the history and theory of how you manage a company or uh by andy grove called only the paranoid survive Uh, and maybe that's true but but you know sometimes paranoid you know things lead to your own uh, destruction, you know in my case for the Nobel Prize, and maybe true too for, for colleagues of mine that were involved in a, in a deeper level that that you you have you know kind of an obsession with not having internal competition whatsoever. And I think that led to them really wanting to exclude me from the announcement of this discovery, which you know I had arguably been the key member of creating in the first place. Um, And so that was very painful, I talk about that in the book, but in the end it turned out to be kind of a blessing, because I wasn't perceived as the leader, and and many of us had reservations about the results, not that they were inaccurate, but just how we interpreted those results. Um, So the results we understand, even though we retracted the claim that was Nobel worthy, that we had witnessed the earliest evidence of inflation, the origin of of this epoch of expansion, um, even though that was true, Um, The data are still correct, the analysis is correct, we didn't fudge anything, we didn't plagiarize or do anything illegitimate, except the interpretation was an overreach beyond what we were able to later know, which is that the universe is inconclusive. We don't know if the universe had this origin in inflation. So it's still out there, still a mystery, so no one's won this Nobel Prize. The second meaning, you know, in the double entendre of the title of the book, comes from the fact that just a few weeks after... You know, losing out on this Nobel Prize after we had retracted the announcement uh, of the or the claim rather that we had made this discovery, I was subsequently asked to nominate winners of the Nobel Prize that you know in theory I could have been eligible for uh, the following year. So in other words, we made the announcement in twenty fourteen we retracted it in the beginning of 2015. And then a few weeks or months later, I was asked to nominate the winners for the 2016 Nobel prize, which would have been announced, you know, kind of a year after the confirmation had that occurred for our experiment. And when I was asked to make this announcement, I started to look very deeply into the history of the Nobel prize, the intentions behind it. And we can certainly get into that. And it made me really quite upset, uh, as a matter of fact, that the Nobel Prize had strayed really radically and irrevocably, in some sense, from what Alfred Nobel, the patron, you know, kind of a saint of the Nobel Prize system, what he intended way back in 1896, when he endowed his will, which would later come to the genesis of the Nobel Prize. Seems like a lot of these uh, awards are getting skewed from their original purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's surprising to me that this award has been around for 117 years. Yeah, really, you know, if it's changed, in my opinion, it's changed for the worst. Um, in, in that it's it's become incredibly powerful and influential. There's there's you know no close second to the Nobel Prize, not the right. you know Grammys or the Teen Choice Awards. You know, <laughs> uh, in the world, even though there are prizes that have monetary awards that are, you know, three times more could actually be 10 times more if you win it by yourself. Um, you know, if you uh, compared to splitting the Nobel prize three ways, um, you know, so why is that? Why does it enjoy such longevity and, and power and influence on scientists like myself, uh, but also on how science itself gets funded, uh, supported, publicized and, and done.
1: I've, yeah. I've, I actually liked that about your book as you kind of started off, you know, with uh, Copernicus and Galileo and kind of worked your way up to modern times. Um, And I learned a lot through that. Um, I mean, I already knew a lot of the information about those guys, but then you go into deeper detail and little, um, you know, offshoots and then talk about little things about their background and stuff like that, which I found Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, But then, uh, you know, when you got to Alfred Nobel's life and stuff, I thought it got, Very interesting with the way that this was like you just said laid out what he wanted and then now what's actually happening versus what he had envisioned before his death yeah Um, and it's very political like anything else in life uh, i don't care what it is whether it's a city board or you know even a pta or whatever you know like it's it's very very political people will do whatever you know they can to like you said get this prize or whatever so well even those uh, art
0: awards like the oscars or anything it's it you gotta you gotta you gotta put yourself out there and really promote yourself that stuff that's right Mm -hmm. um
1: so what do you think though um in terms of what can be fixed uh and i know you talk a little bit about it and like here and there uh but what do you think is like one of the major fixes they can do to get this thing back on
0: track so a big theme in my book is is fairness, not, not in the sense of, you know, we have to be inclusive and, and recognize every, you know, single group or or do things to make sure that everyone feels inclusive, but it should be inclusive. And it turns out that the Nobel Prize has been very exclusive for many years. In the beginning, it literally, you know, excluded Jews from winning it, which is kind of ironic because, you know, Jews have won it. know 10 times more often than than their representation in the population so i think the original motivation behind that which came from you know scientists and so-called aryan physics which was a branch established by hitler in germany um you know to kind of recognize the triumphs of german science in the 1930s that that in 20s and 30s that really established the nobel prize off on a bad footing that even denied einstein for you know a decade and a half from winning the Nobel Prize that he rightfully deserved, um, all the way up into you know the fact that only three women have ever won the Nobel Prize in physics uh, in 117 years. So you know you're you're talking about you know less than one percent of winners, and, and there've been you know 200 and something winners of the Nobel Prize in physics because three people can win it a year. So um, that is an egregious problem that involves the lack of inclusivity. Um, and actually, you know, it's much worse for women than it was for Jews. I mean, more Jews have won it than, than women, fractionally speaking, compared to their representation in the, in the population. Yeah,
1: you mentioned, um, what's her favorite, Vera something. She discovered dark matter. Yeah, Vera uh, Rubin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dark matter, and she didn't get the proper. Um, yeah,
0: that's right. And then that brings up kind of the ultimate unfairness. As I say, this that there's one of the stipulations which Alfred Nobel never uh, never mentioned, which is that the Nobel Prize could not be awarded posthumously, meaning uh, that someone like Vera Rubin, who died ma- after making you know a Titanic discovery, and you know they couldn't get their act together to nominate her while she was alive. You know she lived a, a decently long life, she didn't die young or something like Rosalind Franklin, who was also excluded from. The Nobel Prize for DNA. Um, so there are cases with outright of outright, um, of outright um, you know misrepresentation where people deserved it and didn't get it. Then there are people um, uh, whose discoveries were never awarded it. Uh, and then there are people who you know died, uh, even though their contributions made a tremendous um, impact on the discovery and could not have been accomplished without their contributions. they were forbidden from winning it because of the stipulation made up uh, 80 years after Alfred Nobel's death in uh, an effort, in my opinion, to kind of, you know, really strengthen or solidify the, the power that the Nobel Prize has on society, which is to say that it is really has no equal, and so it's a monopoly. As I talk about in the book, it's the only monopoly. It's not and not just a monopoly. It's the only monopoly in these awards of of scientific achievement. You know, it's like the Oscars have a de facto monopoly on, on a cat- on the entertainment industry. But there's you know two dozen other awards, uh, right. you know, to de- various degrees of popularity. There's nothing comparable. You know, to the average person doesn't know anything about it. So I think that means that they have a special obligation to reflect how science is done and when you know science is done by women and you would really not get that you know if you reach into a hat and pulled out a name you know you, you'd reach in uh, you know 217 times and not pull out a woman so i think that's you know that's you know that's an unfortunate repre- misrepresentation of modern science so the question i put to the nobel committee is how do they rectify things they did in the past um, you know, and and that we should make we should make allowances for for mistakes they made in the past, like this uh, exclusion of Jews, say, or or you know similar exclusion of women. Um, but then going forward, you know, it's nice to recognize that you and apologize, but you have to change the way that you act. And I think the best way to show that they have gotten the message of reform is to change the statutes in the, of the Nobel Foundation. And those haven't been changed in, in almost 50 years and that's, uh, that is you know somewhat uh, embarrassing because you know if you look at other great institutions from politics to Hollywood to business, if they don't adapt, they go away. And I think there's a danger you know there's no law of nature that I say in the book there's no law of nature that ensures the Nobel Prize will always be so prestigious. So why not take advantage? reform things now before it's too late rather than let making it imposed upon them from outside. Yeah, do you that think, sense.
1: do you think there's a possibility, like why wouldn't somebody that funds, you know, all these programs and experiments and stuff, if they're throwing down that much money, why not just create some sort of competitive, like some competition for the Nobel prize? So at least then that'll be like a wake up call. Like, Hey, um, you know, there's a new kid on the block and yeah. you better mind your P's and Q's or this other thing's going to take over.
0: Yeah, thanks for proving my point that I made earlier. There is a prize just like that. It's called the Breakthrough Prize, which is uh, worth $3 million. So the Nobel Prize is one about $1 million in US dollars. It could be divided three ways, so you could get three hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars after taxes in the U.S. Even they tax the medallion, uh, they tax the cash value of the gold medal um, that you get. Uh, so you end up taking home one hundred and fifty k, maybe or something like that. Uh, there's the breakthrough prize, which was given to a woman who was uh, really universally decried as uh, being worthy of Nobel Prize um, stature. But the Nobel Prize was awarded to her boss, her th- PhD thesis advisor. Her name is Jocelyn Bell, and she won the Breakthrough Prize in 2018 and won three million dollars. But you know, just the fact that you know you guys are uh, intelligent and, and and attuned now, especially to things like this, um, and uh, and n- nobody knows about these these prizes. So I think you know, it'd be like an upstart to the Oscars. That's going to you know take away uh, you know the prestige from you know, people like Harvey Weinstein, you know, whatever, and, and do do things to rectify the mistakes that the Oscars have had. Many, you know, this year, women, almost no women nominated for Academy uh, Awards and directing, and it's it's really awful. I you almost wonder, you know, that, that they shouldn't, you know, that they need different categories just as they have, just to make sure that women get recognized. But anyway, let's say there is some other one. Nobody would pay attention to it, and probably if they did, the Nobel Prize would start to... Come down hard on it because they want to. When you have a monopoly, that's all you care about is maintaining your monopoly. And right now, it's you know it's 400 mostly white Swedish men that make these decisions in secret that are permanently seal are sealed for 50 years. So the fact that I was a nominator in 2016 um, that won't be known by anyone in the world until 20 uh, until 2066. When they uh, open up the archives to the public, so um, now that's c- in complete contrast to the to the Oscars, right? Not only and not only do you know who nominated people, you know who is a the nominee. They're sitting there in the audience, right, on Oscar right. night. They're sitting. You won't know that you know I was nominated or somebody else was nominated uh, because that would dilute, in my opinion, that would dilute their brand and the power of this monopoly to have you know really distributed the the credit or the attention to people who don't win it and don't get this magical phone call at three in the morning. Um, And that's partially the same reason they don't give it away posthumously as well.
1: That's intense. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I want to jump to part of your book is based around your childhood and your upbringing and everything. And you talk about how um, you were born, your family was, um, you were Jewish, however, your stepdad adopted you and your stepdad was uh Catholic uh, and from there what effect did that have on the science? Because there's gotta be some sort of connection, I would think, between, you know, um everything you learn about religion and the stars and everything like that. Not that it has any bearing. I know most scientists are atheists, <laughs> would you said like 70% in your book or something like that? I see. Um so what what bearing does that have on what you do to this day or does it have any bearing at all?
0: Oh, I think it has a lot. You know, you can you can do something and study, you know, study something without thinking about the implications of it. I think that is um, you know, it's unfortunate. I mean, you could you could treat it like it's a job, but in my case, why not treat it like it's, you know, the biggest possible questions that somebody could ask or somebody could answer, um, namely that the that the universe has a uh, has either a beginning or an eternity, and want to understand how that universal, how these different universal uh, paradigms play out, and and also confront it if you can with with other great questions in life. I mean, what what is the coincidence, you know, that there is a uh, you know that the Bible, the Old Testament at least, begins with the description of. You know, basically, the origin of the universe. Uh, why does it do that? If it's a book that's mainly about, uh, you know, about laws for, uh, you know, for a, a tribe of, you know, of S- uh, Semitic people in the uh, in the Bronze Age. You know, <laughs> like what what relevance does that have? And uh, and I think you know, I think it's fascinating to me that these things are interrelated and that you one can ask these questions and actually answer them using data. You know, for example, if we find that there is an additional universe, additional to ours, whether in space currently there are other universes, or in time there were universes that preceded ours, I can't think of a bigger impact on philosophy, on on theology, than such a discovery like that. So I, I find it very fulfilling and nourishing, you know, if you will, to the soul to think about these questions of, you know, can you, as I talk about in the, in the book, can you prove the Bible experimentally? (laughs) You know, that's what I do. I, I'm a, I'm an experimentalist in contrast to, you know, the brilliant, uh, Stephen Hawking or Lisa Randall, uh, Jan Levin or Brian Greene, you know, I build telescopes that see photons from the ancient universe and use that information to prove those brilliant theorists wrong. Because you know, it's very easy to come up with a theory that there's a hyperbolic wormhole uh, that can lead to time tra- teleportation, and um, and then that will never be disproven <laughs> in your lifetime. Um, but But if you can build a telescope that can show conclusively that a model of the universe that has an infinite number of competing other corresponding cosmoses, that would be very fascinating to disprove that. And so I think that's a unique niche that my book fills in, which is how do we actually learn about the universe from actual instrumentation? And I have to spend a lot of time describing in lay, you know, person terms how, how these instruments work and, and making comparison to ordinary objects like sunglasses or polarized sunglasses or, you know, thermometers and things like that.
1: Wasn't it uh Pierre Simone Laplace that talked about like if you could have if you had all the tools to measure and understand that you know you would have a better it would be like playing a game of pool where if i gave you the geometry and and all the angles and all the um you know measurements you'd be able to tell where the where i was going to break where all the balls would land so isn't you know there's something to that where science is kind of always trying to chip away at that where it's like okay let's get to the next level let's get to the next level um, but it always seems to me that no matter what is discovered, there's always new questions that arise once you get to that next.
0: Yeah, topic. exactly. I talk about that a lot in the book, how you know every time you come up with a theory, you make some observation that then reveals uh, problems in the original theory, and then those are patched up with new um, observations and constraints. And then those observations and constraints make new predictions which are then also often disproven or lead to new questions. So it's this unending sequence of questions and, and uncertainties uh, that the uh, late great physicist John Archibald Wheeler, uh, who was you know Richard one of Richard Feynman's teachers and, and a great one of the pioneer of, of things like black holes and, and quantum, uh, early quantum theory. He said something to the effect that the job of the scientist is to expand the island of knowledge. But when you expand an island of knowledge into an ocean of ignorance, the borderline, the coastline, if you will, increases. But hopefully it doesn't increase as fast as the area of the island, if that analogy makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's our job. We're always going to encounter as we expand the frontiers of, of our comprehension. We're going to discover things that we are puzzling to us and that will always lead to new questions that hopefully can be answered in, in our lifetimes, but maybe not. And so sometimes you plant a tree whose fruit won't really develop and ripen until long after you're gone. Do
1: you think that's part of the problem, though? Like a lot of people aren't thinking on that plane. They want to be the guy that discovers it now. I want to, I want to be the, the guy that cements my place in history for discovering, you know, the origins of the Big Bang or the Big Bounce or Absolutely. multiverse or whatever.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a, a definite animating impulse, as as you said, and as I say in the book, yeah, seventy percent of the National Academy of Scientists declare themselves to be atheists, and so you know they don't have a transcendent spiritual meaning, and that that's fine. You know, I was an atheist. I described that in the book as well, and and kind of describe myself more as a as a devout agnostic nowadays, in a true sense of the word. But the um, but the in in the in the exploration of the you know, of, of the need for finding meaning as Viktor Frankl and uh, his book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning put it brilliantly. The, the, the desire to find meaning in your life is is really supersedes almost any need other than the physiological. And that's pretty interesting when you comp- to comprehend that, right? That, you know, mm-hmm. nothing besides meaning uh, of all the urges that, that we have as men and women, um, uh, the search to actually have a meaningful life is what counts most of all. And I think for certain type A personalities like myself and and certain colleagues of mine, you know, kind of the way that you keep score after you get out of college and you no longer get graded, uh, uh, you know, is to tally up different awards that that you may, you know, be eligible for. At least it was in my case. And as I said, there's no competitor to the Nobel Prize. I mean, there are more you know, people that have been on the space station in the last few years than there are living Nobel Prize winners in physics, you know, because the age of the winners are going up so radically and the, and the time it takes to to make discoveries and then to fund it. So, you know, a lot of these people are winning it really towards the end of their life or some aren't winning it because of this posthumous stipulation I mentioned earlier. And I think that's a shame. And I think that is a way that science gets distorted In in the record and the because the Nobel Prize is really in some sense used as a tally of the great accomplishments in science, and if you if you use it as a proxy for intelligence or you know and then you exclude people whether it be Jews or women or or whatever or old people uh, you know then I think that creates a distortion to the perception of of what science actually is so. I think it is, it is a a deep need that many scientists have. And I'll just say myself, I I don't name anybody else, but you know, I clearly wanted to win a Nobel prize early in my career. And, you know, people say, well, you're kind of, you know, aren't you a hypocrite because you know, you would still want one. And I say, well, the only way to really, you know, test that is to have them offer me the Nobel prize and see if I accept it. And if I do, I'm a hypocrite. So,
1: (laughs) I mean, I, if, I were to pick how I would imagine a scientist, how I wanted them to relate to the public. It would be like you, I have a tough time listening. To like, um,
0: Brian Cox,
1: no, but Kevin Maurice doesn't like Brian Cox's <laughs> outlook on it. I don't have a problem with him or Sean Carroll. They're actually pretty similar. They're not against if people want to believe in stuff, but they are very critical of it. Um, my problem is like, a, um, you know, like, a, you know, Dawkins or uh you know I, I mean it's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Lawrence Cross. Oh my yeah, God, yeah. Joe
0: Rogan. I was like, I can't even listen to this. This is the most yeah. cr- cringeworthy thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, yeah, I like to say you know they they're very good. You know, I know Lawrence, and and I you know quote a couple things. They're smart.
1: I'm not questioning that. That's oh, yeah. not the question. Right. It's 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 have a little bit of imagination.
0: Maybe that'll help you propel to the next level. You know, something like that. Or, or really be open mind. You know, because a lot of it is. I I think it takes a lot of faith, as I said, to be an atheist to really think that you know there's no God and there's somehow evidence for that assumption. I mean, um, very many eminent scientists, more eminent than me, and, and, and people like those that you mentioned, you know, will freely admit there's a kind of quandary that you can't presuppose the answer to. And the more that you do, the more you kind of dig yourself. It's very hard to come out of a hole. You know, once you say, there is no God, I, can, I believe it, with all my faith and care, I asked Sean Carroll, you know, point blank, you know, he's a friend of mine. He, he blurbed on my book and a nice, a nice commentary on my book. Um, you know, I asked him once, well, what do you think is the probability of the multiverse uh, is correct? And he said, it's about 50, 50. And then I said, well, what do you think is the probability that God exists? And he said less than 1%. And it was just very curious to me because, you know, I think you know, to have that much certainty in the non-existence of one thing that has no evidence, you know, for right. it, Uh, Versus something that, you know, even in principle can't be ruled out. I mean, you could prove God exists. I I don't think anyone would believe it for more than a couple of days just based on human nature. You know, you'd say, oh, that was CGI and, you know, oh, some, you know, meteor came and got avoided by a, you know, a band of angels. And nobody would believe it. Oh, that was, you know, a Russian hoax. Um, But, uh, but, you know, so I think people that say, well, you know, like Woody Allen once said, you know, "I, I don't need God to, to really interact in my life, I'd settle for a divine sneeze. I think, you know, people like Dawkins, the so-called self-proclaimed militant atheists, I think they do that really a disservice because I think they have a very limited, I'd be under, I'd be surprised, you know, as, as, as some people have said, you know, if Dawkins had spent more than, you know, two minutes reading, you know, the Gideon's Bible at his hotel, you know, as opposed to actually taking it seriously, studying it, looking at it as a text that, that has to, you know, speak across generations. And again, I'm not an apologist. I'm not going to, you know, say everything, you know, about the, and any one religion, you know, might contradict any other religion. So, uh, but the fact that as a scientist, I think you should be open to the quest for understanding mysteries and especially about understanding inscrutable things that you may never know about. I think that's, um, people do a disservice when they take on the so-called militant atheist position, but it feels good as a, you know, as an intellectual to take that position. You get a lot more, you know, op-eds in the New York Times, I think. I think there's like a perception too. Once you start admitting you believe in God, then people start poo-pooing it, which I I don't know where this came from, but over the last 10 years, it seems, seems to be so. Yeah. I got, uh, you know, I did a video for this uh, online um, organization called Prager University and I called what's a greater leap of faith, the multiverse or God, uh, what's a bigger leap of faith. And in it, there's like millions of comments and I got all these emails and you know three million people saw it and I get emails even now and people say, oh well like you know you don't even know what atheist means and it says like atheist and the, like the guy will quote atheist means someone you know who is uncertain about the existence. I'm like, no, here's merriam Webster's dictionary <laughs> yeah It's <laughs> like they don't even know what they believe and right. you know I'm wrong about it but again the, the, that video in particular was really put out there to, as, as a cautionary, uh, example of what confirmation bias does to people. So I'll explain. Confirmation bias is the tendency, the psychological compulsion or prejudice that people have to believe preconceived notions of uh, that comport with the you know to the data that they collect that comports with their hypothesis. So you have a discrimination against uh, against uh, black people or you know white people or whatever, and then you're going to notice things about it that confirm your hypothesis, even though it's completely odious. And similarly, you know, for for religion or, you know, people want to believe something is true, they'll start saying, well, it's just a theory, you know, it's funny because they'll say like, well, evolution is not a theory, it's it's a fact, and, you know, and, and we have a very good idea of what a theory is mathematically, what it means to be a theory. Um, and then they'll start wiggling around. What does it mean to be a theory? And then, and then it comes down to the fact that you know, if they had evidence for God, they would believe it. But they don't believe they'll ever get evidence for God. So it's kind of this circular con- confirmation bias rearing its ugly head, as it often happens in life.
1: In uh, the philosophy of science, is doesn't it? The highest something can, uh, uh, the highest uh, level something can reach is a theory, since you would need to disprove a hundred percent of the you know options against it
0: yeah so in science you know or at least in physics i'll restrict it we don't prove things to the level of proof that say a, a mathematical theorem would be proven to so we'll have things like the theory of gravity or the theory of and so they'll hold in certain domains like einstein's theory of universal gravitation or of gravitation and general relativity is very different than newton's theory of gravity universal gravitation Mm-hmm. Uh, they both overlap, and they agree in certain regions where they overlap. They disagree in regions where they don't overlap. At the beginning of time, or in black holes, the um, and the speed of light is. The, and then someday you know, another theory will supersede Einstein's theory, and it will subsume both Newton and Einstein uh, uh, in the same way you know quantum mechanics did as well. The so-called qu- <laughs> quantum theory of gravity. So yeah, <coughs> science is always you know. I, I was laughing. It's settled science, you know. But yeah, you could have a preponderance of evidence for something, but I don't think it's it's a factually correct statement to say something is settled. Nothing can ever change. E- even global warming, you could come up with you know hypotheses and um, you know you could have observations, things we don't understand about the physics of the ocean or the atmosphere that we learn about and that we witness that doesn't that subsumes the theory of you know Arrhenius and and uh, and carbon dioxide. Its impact on atmospheric and, and global temperatures. It subsumes that, but then has even more complex dynamical variations that we can't understand right now. Whether because we lack the computational power or we miss them. So to say it's settled and the globe is always going to warm and you know that that's not even a factually correct statement. I think you know it, it's very it's very um, tempting in science to say what we do is prove things like that and that's how you settle science. But actually, what we do is we rule out things. So we've actually ruled out that mankind has not changed the environment. And that's a better, more scientific way to say it. So we ruled out the fact that we've had no impact on the climate. That's a more scientific way to phrase such a, such a statement. And I think other things are, are equally important. In cosmology, it's just very hard because you only have one universe, at least, that we can observe currently. And so how do you do experiments and test hypotheses on a single instance that doesn't exist in your laboratory that you have to wait for stuff to come to you on distant, you know, on distant mechanisms and messengers coming from, you know, possibly billions of years ago. So it takes a lot of patience.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Um, now you talk about something in the book that I've been thinking about this a lot. So I heard Brian Cox talk about it on Joe Rogan. I heard Roger Pemrose talk about it. Um, it's that the you talk about in your book, you talk about how the universe is flat and um, it's smooth. Um, and you know that by base, what did you triangulate three galaxies or something like that? Um, but how is that the case? Because we do have depth. So how, how is it flat to a certain point? Or I, I was yeah. just trying to figure out how, that, how that's working. So
0: what you could do is you could go, um, depending on your vantage point, you could go out into... Uh, into space, or let's just say we live on Earth, and you want to prove that the Earth is a sphere, one way you could do it is by getting three people with uh, laser guns and, and accurate uh, you know, compasses, protractors, and um, and have the three of them spaced pretty far apart, and they shoot lasers at each other, and they measure the angle between each of the two, every person measures the angle between him or her and the other two um laser uh, guns and from those angles you can actually construct triangles whose angles uh, add up to more than 180 degrees as they do always on a flat piece of paper and uh, for example you could go down to you know uh, Ecuador and you could shoot a, a laser up to Winnipeg and then from Winnipeg you could shoot a laser to Kuala Lumpur and 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 uh, and then back to to Ecuador if you do that, you would have a triangle that has maybe 270, to, you know, three right angles inside of it. It's possible <laughs> to do that. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's indicative of the curvature of the Earth. But on very small scales, you, could, uh, you, could, you would find it very difficult to measure the curvature of the Earth using that, um, that construction because locally, the Earth does appear flat. It's only when you get to those kind of global distances that you get the perception of sphericity of the Earth. However, if you go into the universe, you take uh, three planets, on um, three different stars, around three different stars, and you shoot laser beams and you measure angles. Um, uh, in our galaxy, you would not notice a deviation from perfect flatness. And then you could extend to other galaxies, shoot lasers between other galaxies. Obviously, we can probably never do this experiment. Um, and so you keep doing that, and you go out to the farthest possible galaxies, and you know uh, that, that uh, if you did that, you would get 180 degrees. In fact, if you use the biggest things in the universe that are observable, which are these fluctuations in the amount of microwave energy coming on different uh, regions in the, in the universe, you use those as one of the legs of the triangle. So you use it as one of the base sides of the triangle. Then you measure the other two angles. You get uh, basically 180 degrees f- for all different locations going back to the very uh, earliest light source in the universe, namely the cosmic microwave background. So, when you do that, those triangles add up to 180 degrees, uh, uh, but they didn't have to. They could have added up to different amounts. And if they had added up positively, like the sphere or the Earth, we'd say the Earth is positively curved. We say the Earth is positively curved, then the universe would be positively curved. And that parallel beams of light would diverge as you shoot them away from each other um, uh, out into the universe. But we don't see that. So, what we do see is that space time is flat everywhere that we can see. As far back as we can see and that tells us something not only about the geometry of space and time um, linked together but also something about the amount of uh, energy in the universe called the energy density of the universe and and actually was partially responsible for the argument that we now believe that the universe is dominated by this mysterious energy force called dark energy which we know almost nothing about
1: yeah i saw there's a sci-fi like little documentary uh, on the sci-fi channel with uh, Saul Perlmutter. He's the guy that yeah. had a hand in. Um, uh, I, yeah. he was measuring quasars and how, the, you know, but know. let me yeah. ask you this. When I think of the universe expanding and it being flat, I think of somebody like dropping a drop of water on a table and it expanding out. Is that, would that kind of look, if, if from if you were to perceive it from outside based on what you know, is that kind of what it would look like or?
0: Um, not, not really. I mean, it's not like a drop. It's more like you're inside a block of rubber and the rubber is just getting bigger, stretching. And everywhere you look, if you had uh, little BBs embedded in the rubber at random places and the, pretend those are galaxies, any one of those BBs is expanding away from every other BB in that block of rubber. Uh, and the movie works in reverse too. You could collapse it down. Um, now draw triangles in that block of rubber uh, and uh, you know, imagine that's a billion times bigger than a BB, and now a trillion times, and now imagine that could be infinite for all you know. Um, and and that is more accurate description of what's happening to points in space and time. Every point in space and time is separating from uh, each other at uh, at an evolutionary rate that's given by this expansion of the universe, is Hubble constant, and that um, there's no outside to this infinite block of of rubber, as far as we know. There could be on very, very large scales, but so much larger that we we have no evidence for that currently.
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's get a little woo-woo here because that's kind of what our show is most okay. of the time. Woo! Um, now, what do you think about extraterrestrials, intelligent life? I mean, you see stuff like with our government. They just released the tip program, $22 million over seven years. Why spend that money? Is it a cover? You know, like so that's where the conspiracies comes in. Is this a cover? Is this you know something to be taken seriously? If it's taken seriously, then who are the people working on this? Um, yeah. I, you know, I, w- I would think it would
0: be people like you. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't discuss the alien autopsies. It may or may not. I, <laughs> I, I not make light of it, but but you know, it's it the actual aliens. I I believe there's zero evidence. Of, and so in my personal opinion, based on what I know, and just basic logic on my part, I don't feel like there is a conspiracy to cover up something. I believe that the co- that it's not actually, um, that these things don't actually exist. But I, again, that's a belief. Um, I'd be open to that changing my mind and contradistinction to an atheist, you know, coming to a conclusion about God. I would change my opinion. And, you know, in some sense always you should always ask like an like an alien denier or an atheist like do you hope that you're wrong like do you hope you may believe you're right, right. but if you're a scientist you'll say well there's a t- tiny chance i'm wrong even sean carroll is one of the greatest you know humanists now now they call atheism humanism by the way so oh, yeah. um i don't know why <laughs> the, the reboot the name came you know, got rebooted but maybe for public relations atheist got a bad name but anyway He's one of the most, you know, renowned ones of all, Uh, many, many videos about this online. And as I said, you know, he ascribes probability of God to 1%, but that's, you know, I got a chance. You know, it's like if you had a 1% chance of of dying on a plane, you know, a commercial plane, you probably wouldn't get on that plane, right? So it's non-negligible. Now, if you have a chance and, you know, you could ask him, and I didn't ask him, but, you know, you could ask him, do you hope that you're wrong about that? Um, because if you're wrong, it means there is a god, and then maybe there's a personal god, and 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 then you know how would that play out? Like, ignoring the evidence that you believe that it's not true. Uh, do you hope on a human level that it is true? But anyway, uh, for aliens, I hope I'm wrong.
1: Well, what about the video? Like that's my question. Like they just released those three videos that were from the cockpits of our most. That was like the most forward-looking infrared that we have within our.
0: Yeah. Um, well, those I mean, three I videos. I, you know, for right now. You know, on half of the Earth's surface, there are astronomers, you know, looking up at the sky uh, in every possible wavelength band, um, or looking at the whole sky, pretty much, that's in nighttime, from the North Pole to the South Pole, literally. I mean, we have people at the South Pole right now working on projects I'm affiliated with, and they're looking at microwaves, and they have optical telescopes, and they can see all sorts of aurora and atmospheric phenomena. Uh, So no astronomer, you know, that I know of has witnessed and has, and and by the way, they're recording this through very advanced optical cameras. I mean, you know that CCD cameras and even radio telescope, those all came from radio astronomy, optical astronomy, et cetera. They didn't didn't just come out of industry. So the phone camera in your pocket, that came, you know, as courtesy of astronomical uh, technological discovery. So what happens is the photons that we see from the universe are so faint that we have to invent new technology that's super sensitive in order to mine the universe. So we spend most of our time getting low noise, high sensitivity, wide coverage. And so none of these telescopes have ever seen it. That doesn't mean that they don't exist, uh, you know, that, um, but I, you know, I also look at the probability for life to form in the universe as very, very rare. Um, you know, so it's, they would have to be good at, 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 you know, at, really doing everything up until the point where they actually make contact. And and I, I like to use the analogy, you know, if you go to the zoo, um, you know, you really and you didn't want the animals to know you're there, you wouldn't go and bang on the cages. You wouldn't be like throwing a Coke can in the in the in the uh, inside of one of the cages. You want to keep right. it Although my daughter did do that the other day, she threw her applesauce. <laughs> her kinda, <laughs> Maybe there's some aliens and, like that too, man. Yeah. Exactly right, but you know she's two years old, so you know presumably a hyper intelligent species that's able to navigate across circumstellar right, right. distances would be able to. Does it mean they're not true? I have no evidence for them existing.
1: No, no, absolutely. I was just, just curious what you thought. Well, and the other thing too is couldn't they be interdimensional? Like the way I look at it is like, what, string theory, you need 10 dimensions. We know three for sure if you want to say time. I mean, I'm sure you'd say time is the fourth one. And then you've got the Calibi, um, you know, the uh, collapse. Um, so if that's the case, then if we don't even know where those th- those six dimensions are, how could, how could you know, like I think about that too. It's like anything could, could be coming in and out of those dimensions. We'd have no idea because we can't yeah. even really perceive it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, currently we have probably less evidence. <laughs> you know, we have no eyewitness evidence claimed uh, for string theory. So it may be that it's true, but we have no evidence for it. So I think what you're doing is taking something, you know, that's epsilon and then you're multiplying by something. Right, that's right. Epsilon. So... Um again, it's not proof. I'm not an expert. I will say there are experts on this. One is including a professor at the University of Rochester named Adam Frank, <coughs> who wrote a book <coughs> for the same publisher as my book um, called Norton. <coughs> and he wrote a book called Light of the Stars, which he argues that there are possibly in the history of the entire observable universe, there could have been, you know, hundreds of civilizations that were advanced enough to create the most reliable marker of intelligence, which is, uh, in his mind, global warming. So he he views global warming as a sign of technological progress, inevitably that occurs on distant stellar and planetary systems, and he goes through the arguments in great detail, and he comes up with a bound that, um, in his mind, is a lower limit on how many civilizations have ever lived. And he comes up with a bound that's about at least bigger than 100 civilizations, that are ad- advanced enough to create global warming, and you ask, well, when did global warming happen on Earth? It was probably you know beginning ten thousand years ago, something like that. Uh, so he's very uh, he's very sanguine about the existence of these. Now I point out that the universe is fourteen billion years old. Mm-hmm. That means if you had you know one civilization every um, you know uh, ten, 10 civilizations every billion years or so, you'd have uh, you'd still have more civilizations than he's saying over the en- entire history of the universe. Then the question is, how long do they last for? Can they last a billion years? Um, so how many are contemporaneous now in our observable universe? And then lastly, we basically know that these, you know, the universe has a size that because of the expansion of the universe is about uh, three times the age of the universe times the speed of light. So that works out to be about 46 billion light years. So he's saying that a sprinkled amidst, uh, 40, 14, uh f- over fourteen billion years, sprinkled amidst forty-six billion light years in each direction, there have been a hundred civilizations, uh, approximately. Uh, I don't like Mild. those odds. I don't know.
1: Uh-huh. you know what do you what do you think about like uh, the Avi Loeb at Harvard with this amuamua uh, and how it could be some sort of interstellar spaceship or yeah, like panspermia asked. or something you know something along those lines?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I was talking about that uh, with Dennis Prager on his show about a month or two ago. Uh, and that's really there's a question in, in my mind, there are three questions that are extremely interesting to think about. One is the origin of the universe from a non-universe or from a previous existing universe. So either a universe from nothing, to use Lawrence Krauss's book's title, or a universe from something, namely a (laughs) a collapsed universe uh, previous to ours. So that's one origin type of phenomenon. The next one is the origin of life from chemicals. So we know our universe started off without life. It started off as mostly hydrogen, um, quarter helium, and a percent or so of everything else. And so th- that was that didn't include, you know, life forms and little babies running around. It started off from hydrogen and helium, and then stars eventually made elements and very complicated. Like Genesis processes. A
1: and Genesis B.
0: Yeah. So then uh, so how did you get life from non-life? And then the last thing that interests me is how you go from life, you know, a bacterium to Bach. Right. You know, how do you go from, <laughs> yeah, from from life forms? And that's another kind of big bang. So um, this just fixating on the middle one, life from non-life. Uh, that theory of of so-called panspermia really just pushes the question off to another solar system. You know, it says that life on Earth was seeded by life from another solar system. Uh, It doesn't say anything about the origin of life from non-life, which is called abiogenesis. And some of the work done on abiogenesis was done, the Miller-Urey experiment uh, was done by a professor, you know, who lived here at UC San Diego long before I got here, in Harold Urey, and they claimed, you know, the, for a composition of the early Earth's atmosphere with a certain amount of electrical sparking from lightning storms, that you could get uh, certain kinds of amino acids that would form. Uh, and it was that's later they on. That's what teach
1: in school. Time. Yeah, that's what we learned in school. Is that yeah. Like, like that, lightning storms covered the Earth and created the building blocks for life. and yeah. Single-celled, multi-celled.
0: But right. You know. So that's completely uh, not accepted right now. as a <laughs> as working. Great. Out. But almost <laughs> nobody knows that. And... Actually, if you go to the repository of all of human knowledge, Wikipedia, <laughs> and you go there, you get your PhD in Wikipediology. The Akashic uh, Record, modern day. Yeah, exactly. The uh, Library of Alexandria. Careful, careful. Yeah, exactly. We could get banned. Um, and then, uh, actually, noticed on one of my, I get, I did, a, I hosted Freeman Dyson and Greg Benford here at San Diego last week, and I put up a video on my YouTube channel, um, and uh, and then somehow it got tagged with a with a a uh, helpful statement about global warming, even though I, I barely, I don't even think. Oh yeah.
1: Under your video at the bottom was like a banner.
0: Yeah. There's a banner that says, here's yeah. global warming. And the, the, it was mostly a talk about, you know, how physics is done and particle physics. And I don't even think we talked about global warming. And even if we did, I mean, one of them is, you know, believes in it. One of them has more speculative questions about, it. but anyway, getting back to, but if you go to Wikipedia. It says something to the effect that, um, although, uh, there's no single, uh, accepted theory for abiogenesis, the origin of life from non-life. Nevertheless, uh, almost everybody accepts that it's true. <laughs> it's like, can you imagine that? Like, uh, you know, most people believe in DNA, but there's no evidence for it. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's kind of uh, it's shocking to me. Uh, that, but that is the state of affairs when it comes to people believing in kind of, you know, notions that they – that they want to believe in. And I'm not saying, you know, God did it and that proves God, no, or scientists are stupid, I don't believe that either, but my fundamental hypothesis is that scientists are humans, and humans have prejudices, and to assert otherwise that we don't have biases, that we're not driven by prejudices, is just uh, a fallacy, <clears throat> and it's one of the many fallacies I think does damage to the scientific perception amongst the general public
1: well isn't it like a 50 50 thing either we were created or we weren't i mean i look into like this i like all the simulation theory kind of stuff too like yeah um, i don't know if you look into any of that ever but some of that's super fascinating i mean there's some that are more academic than others like a nick bostrom you know as opposed to like i like tom campbell but you know some of it gets a little you know out there but in terms of i the way i i correlate all this stuff is there anybody doing research with consciousness mixed with the kind of work that you're doing or some sort of combination between the two you
0: you know the the closest to that would be sir roger penrose who i also host here on occasion <clears throat> uh that there is um you know kind of he studies consciousness in great detail has um has has theories of how consciousness arises.
1: Yeah with the lattice A and the lattice B microtubules, all that.
0: Microtubules, kind of stuff. exactly. Yeah. So um I don't personally believe in that, but but um but that's you know more a statement of my ignorance about stuff than anything else. But the but the bottom line is, yeah, the consciousness and the cosmos, I gave a talk um, at a conference organized by Stuart Hameroff, who worked with Roger Penrose on the microtubule theory here in San Diego a couple of years ago. And I called it you know, conscious cosmos and the quest of, for understanding how dust in the universe, is, a, which is a big theme of my book, how that came to really become conscious. And the thing I took away from the conference, you know, people like Noam Chomsky were there and others, is that really they have no idea what consciousness is, um, which is fine. Uh, and they don't have a real you know, working definition, <clears throat> this hard, hard problem of consciousness, uh, that they really can't define what it is. And worse that, you know, some people believe in, you know, kind of just like panspermia, they believe in pan consciousness or pan <clears throat> where, you know, even individual coffee cups, you know, theoretically, could have uh, consciousness, particles, electrons could be conscious. Um, and, you know, it gets a little woo woo. Uh, and I, I did talk to, Deepak Chopra about this uh, <coughs> a while is that, back.
1: Is that because the observer effect on quantum particles? That
0: yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like kind of loosey goosey things. <clears throat> it's not clear that you can make up what's called a wave function that describes something that is itself a wave function. You know, so like the wave function of an electron or a hydrogen atom makes sense, but if you want to say that consciousness is somehow embedded in what a wave function is then it kind of becomes recursive to the effect that you can't really, at least in my mind, I can't really disentangle it. You know, talk about the wave function of the entire universe. Well, that contains the universe. So, you know, is it this epiphenomenological thing? I don't know. Um, I think it's fascinating to think about it. I just don't think that there's been a great deal of progress on it uh, because there isn't really a universally accepted notion of what con- what we're even talking about, at least with the Big Bang. You know, we could say, well, there was either a big bang, or the universe is eternal, or it's cyclic, and and you can go out and you can make observations about it uh, with regard to the, you know, kind of uh, framework that you're that you're pursuing ontologically. But in this case, it's not so clear to me. But um, but yeah, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on that. I'm only an expert, um, simple man, just an expert on, on, hey. on cosmology. No,
1: I mean, I was just curious because you know, you are. You know, in the top, you know, realm of people looking into the stars. I was just curious. I mean, I think we can can't we agree that we are basically stardust observing the universe? Like we're basically the universe observing itself. I mean, I don't know how you could contradict that, knowing you know what we know. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, on a
0: material level, yes. You know. Mm Hmm. Yeah. So there's yeah the whole notion of materialism. I I do think you know this notion of consciousness. You know, which could be like a soul and a notion of that. Uh, Those are very, you know, kind of the weightiest, the most important questions I think you could really pursue. Uh, So in my mind, yeah, it's a very worthy question. I don't think it's off limits at all. Um, It's just uh, I prefer just my own personal predilection is to try to, you know, there's more than one mystery and and there's more than one opportunity to spend a lifetime working on something. For me, it's understanding that first big bang. How did how did life come from, or how did the universe come from non-universe or pre pre-existing universe? Um, and that's kind of really what I'm dedicating myself to understanding. And then perhaps you know sometimes you understand something, you know, say you could understand more about you know chemistry once you understood the origin of the uh, of the atomic nucleus and the atomic uh, uh, structure. Then you could understand well why is the periodic table arranged as it is and so it took physics to explain how chemistry and maybe it'll be that biology can be explained from the early cosmochemistry uh which itself could be explained from the uh pre-existing or or inflationary universe so with no, that that's awesome i yeah, think
1: i think you're uh, you're doing your part which is important we need scientists i think just to focus on certain things and then you know then you can start to to put the pieces together but we have everybody jumping around a different uh realms of things that probably makes yeah. it difficult but i know you uh you're on a tight time schedule yeah so we'll get you out of here we'll have you back yeah, this, on. Guy, this uh,
0: guy's got a lot of stuff to do baby. you're gonna be our like... go, you're
1: gonna be our go-to scientist we're gonna get get you back on here and just pick your brain because i, I you oh, know wow. i i like your book your i loved your book actually so everybody go to amazon.com and uh pick up uh losing the Nobel prize i think is it's on uh, kindle and audible and it's on all the 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 platforms so check that out and uh we'll we'll have you back on thanks for coming on
0: that'd be awesome guys i really enjoyed it great questions and uh yeah let us keep in touch for sure all right awesome bye guys peace